It's great to see everyone online. Oops, already a little water in there. So this morning, I'm going to continue to talk about INMO. And this is a lecture talk four. And I want to say that um, Daijaku Sensei helped me a little bit with this because I was kind of floundering around when I first started and thought, boy, what am I going to say? So I talked to her a little bit about it and kind of got a fresh perspective on it, which was nice. I was sort of going the seriously geeky route. So it was good. All right, so um, in this section of Inmo, Dogen quotes two stories and they are from the uh, a text called uh, the uh, Jingdei Chengdeng Lu, or Records of the Transmission of the Lamb, which was probably compiled around 1008, around in there. And um, the first story involves the 17th and 18th ancestors in our lineage chart. That's down from Shakyamuni Buddha. So we chant their names every Tuesday morning and it's Shogunandai and Kayashata, right? They remember those guys? And um, the second story is from a few hundred years later uh, and involves uh, Daijian Huining. And in Japanese, his name is pronounced Daikon Ino, who is the sixth patriarch of Zen. So he's the, from Shakyamuni Buddha, his 33 down in the lineage chart, but the sixth ancestor in uh, Chinese Zen. So um, we also chanted his name. So, so this is, these are the two stories. So here's the first story. Uh, once upon hearing the ringing of a bell, when blown by the wind, Master Sangha Nandi asked Gaya Shata, is it the ringing of the wind or the ringing of the bell? Gaya Shata said, it's neither the ringing of the wind nor the ringing of the bell. It's the ringing of one's mind. Master Sangha Nandi said, and what is mind? Or he said, whose mind? Uh, depending on the translation. Gaya Shata said, because both are without deluded attachment. And then Master Sanganandi said, excellent, excellent. Who but the young master can succeed in my way? And eventually he transmitted him to the treasury of the true Dharma eye. So that's the first story. And here's the second story that you might have heard already that involves uh, Hui Ning, the sixth patriarch. So in this story, two monks are arguing. One monk said, it's the flag that's moving. The other monk said, it's the wind that's moving. And then they argued back and forth with each other about this without stopping until the sixth ancestor said to them, 
It's not the wind moving, it's not the flag moving, it's your minds moving. And then the two monks on hearing this immediately accepted what Wei Ning had said. And like the first story, Wei Ning was overheard by the abbot and of this temple and he was immediately recognized as being awakened. As a matter of fact, the abbot said, I will become your student. So what do these two stories mean? Excuse me for a second, I'm not happy with what my view here. Okay, what do the two stories mean? So the first thing is, don't get caught thinking that the stories are saying that everything is formed by your mind and nothing exists outside your mind. So that's not what the story's about. Dogen comments, on this and he says if that's what you're thinking it is he said in the hearer there this is kind of the logic of this mindset in the hearer as in hearer there is the arising of a thought and this arising of a thought is called mind if this thought did not exist how could it take the sound of the ringing as an object since the achieving of hearing depends on this thought it may be called the root of hearing therefore one might say that the mind rings. And then Dogen says, this is an erroneous understanding. So if you've heard this story, and this is how you think what's being said, what the teaching is here, Dogen's saying, no, that's not the teaching. So, um, and this is also true of the second story. So in the first story, there's, no conflict in the story, just the confirmation of the understanding uh, of the venerable Sanganandi when he asks, which is it? Does the bell or the wind cause ringing? And Gaya Shaka says, it's neither, it's the mind. And then Sanganandi says, whose mind or what mind? In other words, what are you defining as mind? What is the mind? With what mind did you hear this? So this is the mind without deluded attachment that knows that ringing is the confluence of everything, including this mind. Okay, so what uh, in, the, in the original story, he says, uh, he says, uh, because both are without deluded attachment. Deluded attachment can mean often is translated as quiescence, which is a little bit of a problematic word in Soto Zen because it's used as a derogatory uh, description of Soto Zen by some other schools. So quiescent also means tranquil, calm, and it's defined also in the Denkaroku as being without delusion, delusional attachment. So that's what I'm going with, it's without delusional attachment. So he says, that's the meaning of this, is that this is the mind without delusional attachment. So when he says that, he says that he knows that this ringing that we're hearing is the confluence of everything, including this mind. And for that reason, he is not saying that the ringing of the mind is the only thing that's happening. But as a person, 
that is our experience, right? As a person, that is what we experience. And in this case, that experience includes mind, ringing, bell, wind, etc. Everything that's part of this process. So it isn't just one thing or the other, which is kind of how we tend to want to think about it. You know, when we're in these koans or stories, when we're given a choice, like, you know, is it this, is it that? We always go for the choice. It's like, it's like we're some, it's like we're Padlog's dog or something, you know, because the because the almost always the answer, if you will, is not to make the choice of this, that, or the other thing, right? But we fall for it every time. Oh, I have to make a choice here. So then Dogen goes on to say in this in his commentary, he says, uh, therefore, he says, both are calm without delusion. Because in the text, remember, he says both. And we're not quite sure what both refers to. So he so Dogen says, therefore, he says, both are calm without delusion. It says that the ringing of the mind is not the ringing of the wind. The ringing of the mind is not the ringing of the bell. The ringing of the mind is not the ringing of the mind. This is classic Dogen. So the point Dogen's making here is that, I think the point Dogen's making is he's saying, the flip side of this, don't go to the place where everything is all one thing, right? So because we have particularity, so he's saying, there is particularity here. So it's not just about oneness. But then Dogen says, once we thoroughly investigate what is intimately such, okay, we're back to suchness, things just as they are, reality itself unfolding. Once we thoroughly investigate what is intimately such, we should go on to just say, it is the ringing of the wind, it is the ringing of the bell, it is the ringing of the blowing, it is the ringing of the ringing. I would also add, it's the ringing of the mind. It's the mind ringing the mind. We can, you know, be pretty confident that in situations like this, we can come up with any number of combinations. So um, Eric Locker, you all know Eric, He's been listening to these talks. And uh, Eric wrote me an email and uh, about the last talk. And he was reading forward in, in Inmo. And he said, I had the, re he wrote, I had the realization when Dogen said the mind is ringing, is not the mind ringing, that I was objectifying mind. What a relief. So when it, is, when it is asked, what is the mind? And the answer is altogether serene. This is the wind rings, the bell rings, the blowing rings. Okay, so here's what Eric said again. I had the realization when Dogen said, the mind that is ringing is not the mind ringing, that I was objectifying the mind, what a relief. So when it is asked, what is the mind? And the answer is altogether serene, this is the wind rings, the bell rings, the blowing rings. So my understanding of Eric's comment is that once we see all the factors that go into this, that, you know, inclusively, 
then we're freed from thinking we're not that we're the only actors in this situation, which where he says when Eric says that we are freed from thinking, Eric says, you know, what a relief. And then, um, so the mind is not just my mind and the mind is not just your mind, but we can include in this idea of mind, all the factors known and unknown that are arising in this particular point in time. In this case, this example that's given is the sound of the bell ringing. So we might see the mind outside the activity of ringing, wind, bell, etc., but we don't make the mind greater than the other aspects that are happening, that are creating this moment of the bell, the sounding of the bell. Um, so what we see and we understand is that this is a concentrated, coordinated effort which results in the ringing of the bell and the ringing of the bell and the blowing of the wind and the ringing of the ringing or any other combination of that. The mind hearing it, it's like this totality of combined specific activities. It's not, they're not amorphous, they're specific. They're being named specifically here. We have the bell and we the clapper, which he doesn't mention, and we have the wind and we have our mind and all of these aspects and the ringing, all of these things are very specific named activities and results. So um, with what mind do we hear and understand what is happening around us? I think that's the question. With what mind do we hear and see and understand, interpret, respond to what's happening around us? So is, is it the mind of delusion or is it the mind of inclusivity? In other words, are we willing to question our own authority? That voice in our head, that understanding that we have? Are we willing to ask ourselves if there's more going on, possibly more going on than the view that we have, our limited view? And to what do we attribute the causes of the events around us? So uh, yesterday I was looking at the Washington Post and they did this very interesting survey. They said in the survey, they asked people, they said, which party do you blame for politically motivated violence? That was the question. Well, I was really surprised by the answer. The answer was 31% said the Republican party. 25% blamed the Democrats and 32% blamed both parties. So, uh, this is actually the same as asking the question, you know, is it the wind, the bell, the mind that causes the ringing? If we say the mind, and we understand that ringing only exists in our minds, this can't be correct. If we say it's only attributed to the bell, then we have to say, what about the wind? So if we look at political violence, 
political violence doesn't just exist in our minds. Although political violence is the result of how we think about responding to our difficulties, right? That's the reason, that's what you say, oh, I don't like what's going on here. I'm suffering, I have to fix this. And the way I'm gonna fix this is I'm gonna to go to Nancy Pelosi's house and hit her husband in the head with a hammer. Or maybe we say to ourselves, I don't like what's going on with the Republicans, so I'm gonna to go to their softball game, do you remember this? And I'm gonna shoot myself a Republican Senator. So how do we you know, respond to these difficulties? So political violence or any response, whether it's skillful or harmful, has to be like a dance between all the parties, all the causes and conditions. And that dance that we engage in can be harmonious or it can be disharmonious. It can be discordant. So um, in the story about the six ancestors, six ancestor about the two monks arguing, you know, these two monks are fighting about an idea. They're fighting over theology, essentially, you know, how they understand the nature of, of reality in their minds and their practice. And I think if the sixth ancestor hadn't come along, they probably would have gotten in a fight with each other. So we would have had these two monks rolling around on the ground. No, it's your mind. No, it's this, it's that, it's ringing, it's the bell, you know. Can you imagine like fighting over something like that? <laughs> so, um, but they didn't do that because Wei Ning came along and he said, hey, wait a second, guys, you're arguing over the wrong thing. He said, it's your minds that are hearing the bell. And that was such a radical idea to these two monks that they just stopped them cold. Oh, there's a third alternative. They must have thought to themselves. But the question is, is that the whole of what Wayning meant? No, because Wayning said it was your minds moving. So what does that mean? So according to the first story, if we have a tranquil, quiet, undiluted mind, then we will not get caught by thinking that the answer must be one or the other, right? So that's what, that's what we're being told in the first story. In fact, there is room in our minds for all the possibilities. This is the unmoving mind. This is the mind of calm, and tranquility. So unmoving doesn't mean fixed, it means settled and calm. So in the platform sutra of the sixth ancestor, which is a very famous sutra about Wei Ning, um, here's what Wei Ning says. He says, self nature, which what he means, what we would say Buddha nature, a Buddha mind, so self-nature is without error, disturbance, and ignorance. When one is always separated from the forms of things, in other words, you're not caught by this diluted view, you're not clinging. When one is always separated from the form of things, what is there that can be set up? What, what is there that you can attach yourself to that you can have a fixed view about? 
So that's sort of an elucidation of what he was talking about, about the mind. So I say, here's the problem for us. How do we activate and maintain this mind in our daily lives? So one way in this teaching that we're being told is we have to drop our fixed views. Um, so earlier I mentioned the Washington Post poll or on who causes violence in the political arena, which is what is the sound? What causes our awareness of the sound? Is it the wind? Is it the clapper and the bell? Is it the mind? Is it the bell itself? What causes violence? Is it someone or something outside myself? Or is it me? Or is it just another person? Or is it the group? Is it the culture? Mass media? Is it fear? So I think it's really clear that we could say that this unskillful action is having an attachment to a fixed view. That's one of the reasons why these problems happen are happening. Because if you don't have an attachment to something, you're not gonna be fighting over it. If the two monks were not attached to, no, it's the wind, no, it's the flag. If they weren't fighting over that, then they might've had a different outcome. But instead they were like really polarized about this. And then Wei Ning is kind of like, you know, I don't know, like Gandhi coming along and he goes, you know, he says, oh, no, guys, it's your minds that are moving. So um, we have to ask ourselves, does it help to blame and does it help to be entrenched in a view? So when I first read the Washington poll, uh, post poll, you know, I was surprised. I realized that I had a kind of false syllogism in my mind. Republicans are more prone to express their political views with violence than Democrats. Republicans um, are the option to check here. Therefore, they are more responsible and I'll check that option. I don't know how close that is to being a classical syllogism, but anyway, that was my mindset. Of course, it's gonna be the Republicans. Nobody's gonna pick the Democrats or maybe, I don't know, 20%, I don't know, 15%, I don't know. These are people who read the Washington Post. Goodness gracious, you know. Oh, who has a fixed view here? <laughs> Who's like really surprised to discover that actually between, you know, we've got three answers here. They're all basically about the same percentage of people. So my unexamined view has many flaws. All Republicans are not the same. All Republicans are not violent. Democrats can be violent too. All Democrats are not the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Question the authority of my notions about what's going on here. And, you know, this is kind of like abstract, like I'm reading a thing on the Washington Post and it's like, you know, it's not, I'm not right here, but this sort of mindset is going to affect me if I, you know, run into somebody who doesn't share my views about 
the political party. And are we going to like get in a fight about it? We're rolling around on the ground, you know, having a fight. Or is there some way that we can dialogue with each other? So, you know, they've had those groups now, I forgot what they're called, where people get together. Huh? Not a focus group. They're actually people get together of different um, ideas about things and actually talk to each other about it, you know. And they've been, there was one in Santa Cruz a few months back. So uh, this is a really interesting, cool thing to do, you know, to actually get together and have a conversation as opposed to having these pre preconceived fixed ideas um, based on, uh, well, delusional thinking. So, you know, the point is if we're not open to considering that our logic, our emotional responses are flawed, um, that our view doesn't include the entire picture, um, then how can we have equanimity and wisdom? And how can we come to a skillful response when it's required of us that we be skillful? So when our mind is tranquil and we do not have deleted thoughts, then we're able to show, slow down this process of how we're thinking about things and consider our response. You know, is it skillful? Is it problematic? Now we achieve this through practice, uh, both formal practice and informal practice. It's achieved through finding a good teacher. It's achieved through being part of a sangha. It's achieved by understanding the teachings and it's achieved by actually applying the teachings to our lives. So, you know, of course, there's more in Buddhism. There always is. There's always another list or another thing you're supposed to focus on or whatever. But, you know, these are the basics. And in this case, and about the stories today, this is Dogen, you know, keeps going back to this word, to inmo, to suchness. So he's trying to bring us back to this mind which sees and is willing to consider that everything, consider everything, and that we can use that insight to cultivate wisdom and compassion. That's the whole gig here, cultivating wisdom and compassion, the bodhisattva practice. So it's because of that understanding that we don't get fixated on the two aspects of, you know, bifurcating the situation based on our delusional thinking and our emotional attachments. So as we practice without this fixed view, we can answer the question, what thing, what aspect, what cause and effect needs to be addressed here? Like what's the best way to respond to that situation? Soto Zen teachings believe that we are endowed with the jewel of a Buddha mind. Therefore, our teachings are about bringing forth that mind, communicating with that mind, cultivating that mind, and responding with that mind. So that includes letting go of our ideas about that mind. So not having a fixed view is one way that we express our understanding. Thank you.